Nancy Axford was killed on August 3rd, 2014, and this is her husband's story. Mourning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, I know someone that was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. Murder causes confusion and fear in communities. It certainly did for me. But you know what? I can't even begin to imagine the effect it has on families, on loved ones, on children. The sadness. The loss. I wanted to create a podcast that would give a voice to loved ones of murdered victims. Mourning the Murdered is that podcast and is created in remembrance of our victims. You will never be forgotten. The opinions expressed on Mourning the Murdered are not necessarily those of the host, producer, or its broadcasters. Sensitive topics will be discussed and are not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, Bob. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered Podcast. Yeah. How are you? Not bad. Sault Ste. Marie is a city on the St. Mary's River in Ontario, Canada, close to the U.S. border. Michigan and Ontario are joined by the International Bridge. French colonists referred to the rapids on this river as Les Sous de St. Marie, which is where the town derived its name from in archaic French meaning St. Mary's Falls. There is a very large French-speaking population here in Sault Ste. Marie. And when it was declared as English being the city's official speaking language in all government matters, this did not bode well with the French speakers of this town. This resolution was struck down in a 1994 court ruling and ceased to have legal effect. The climate here is well within the norms for Canada with hot, humid summers and cold winters. Steel has been a major player in their economy, with ups and downs over the years. When imported steel began to compete with domestic production, their prosperous years seemed to take a big downward turn. China's increased demand for steel has helped bring them back into an upward curve, increasing their prosperity again. Forestry is also a major local industry, as well as the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporations and call centres. The Sioux, as Sioux St. Marie is referred to, is trying to claim the title of Alternative Energy Capital of North America, with its vast array of solar, hydroelectric and wind farms. They are certainly forward-thinking here. An interesting tidbit about this town It is one of the few in Canada that does not open its stores on Boxing Day, December 26, but instead starts its post-Christmas shopping frenzy on the 27th. It is host to the first female Canadian astronaut in space, Roberta Bondar, as well as the famed NHL Espositos. This town has a very high Italian population mostly descending from the southern region of Calabria, 
as well as a significant First Nations population. So basically, let's start back at how did you and your wife meet? Um, I was working at uh, WOLCO in um, Sault Ste. Marie at the time. I think I was about 21 years old. And um, I told all the folks in my division I was looking for an Italian girlfriend. Maybe somebody to cook me some pasta. (laughs) (laughs) And did you find an Italian girlfriend? Oh, yes. Well, then... And I married her. Oh, well, isn't that lovely. So what year did you two get married? Well, don't ask me those tough questions, (laughs) but we were married for about 44 years, I think. Wow, that's lovely. Such a nice long marriage. Yes, we um, lived on our boat for the summers. That's and, interesting. Uh, the boat uh, the boat was down um, in the St. Clair uh, Lake area. Near uh, for p- people that don't know, that would be near Detroit. Okay, wow! And so you how, how you would spend three or four months on the uh, on yep. the boat? Wow! And how did you find? How many years did you do that for? I think that was about our third year doing it in the, in the summer. But you had the boat for more years than that. Oh, I had different boats several times, but that boat I bought, when when we bought it, we went down and used it right away. Wow, that's so fun. What an interesting way to spend the summers out on a boat for the summer. That's definitely not a common thing that you hear of. You're docked a lot of the time, but you come and go to different things or events near you. You might go to a restaurant for dinner or that type of thing, or you might go to another club just to see your friends. It's a socializing process, and people enjoy it. It's very similar to trailering or RVing, except that it's on the water. Right, yeah, that's that's great. I didn't realize there was such a big community of people that uh, that did that, like trailering, like you say, you know? I know more people that do trailering. That's really, really interesting. Nancy and Bob's dream of retirement had been stolen from them in an instant, in the blink of an eye. How devastating. 44 years of marriage. They spent their lifetimes working and being busy with daily life, working toward the days when they could spend their time enjoying each other. After spending a lifetime together, wanting to enjoy the lazy days of boating, dining out, and having fun together. Socializing being such a big part of their lives, they wanted to spend time with friends and family, enjoying the thrill of being out on the water, enjoying time with their friends on their boat, heading out to enjoy a lovely day, thinking that they would come home at the end of the day, thinking it would be like their other summer days, out in the fresh air and sunshine. But this day was unlike any of their other days, and unlike any that most people will ever have to endure. Listen to what happened to this loving couple and the tragedy that struck on this August day. This is the story of when Nancy Axford was killed. 
you had a terrible tragedy one summer when you were out on your boat. Would you like to tell yeah. us a little bit sure. about what it happened? It was uh, late in the summer, and we were we were coming back with some friends. We were within a couple hundred yards of our turn-in at our marina, and uh, our boat got hit by a speedboat that was coming up from behind. The speedboat went right through my cabin cruiser, uh, went below me on the on the bridge, and right through the windows and out the other side. And uh, we had uh, six people on board, and two of them were killed, and one was my wife. The uh, guy left the scene of the accident. They got him pretty quickly, and he was impaired uh, pretty badly. What happened after the crash? What what was that chaos like? How how what what happened? I guess immediate, immediately I'm the captain of the ship. I'm trying to put out a mayday on my radio. This uh, the ship had been quite damaged, and I hadn't been down below to see how people were. So my first job. I tried to radio the Mayday, and then I went down below to look and see what my passengers were like and who was hurt and who wasn't. And I counted the passengers and saw that my wife was missing. Mm. And so changed the Mayday to one in the water. She, uh, she was pushed out of the boat and into the water, so she probably died almost immediately, and the other guy virtually died in my arms. Oh my goodness, that must have been just a horrible time. Horrible well, if you're time. a serious boater, you are always prepared for that kind of thing, I guess, but nothing really prepares you for it until it happens. That's right. And how quickly did you get help? Oh, uh, almost immediately. Oh, that's um, good. You know, I was traveling with some of my friends in another boat just ahead of us, so they saw it all happen, and um, there were people behind me that saw it. I didn't see the, uh, I didn't see the boat coming at me. It came up from behind at around 60 miles an hour, oh, and twisted as it tried to pass me. It passed too close and twisted in midair, so it actually jumped. I jumped onto my boat in midair, about three or four feet off the water. A drunk driver. It was clear that alcohol was the deciding factor in this case. There was no doubt about that. It was decided in court that this was the case. People often think that drinking on a boat isn't the same as in a car for some strange reason. Being drunk and driving a motorized vehicle, a motor boat. How can anyone consider them to be different? But in the eyes of the law, they are. I hope people begin to think differently after hearing this story and actually stopping to think about it. Actually thinking about it. Drinking and driving is deemed as socially unacceptable, illegal, a criminal act in Canada. Finally, after years of people dying at the hands of drunk drivers, the person who drove this boat, severely intoxicated, into Nancy, 
innocently enjoying her friends and the end of their outing and killed her. Vehicular manslaughter. He had two previous drunk driving charges, driving a car. He was a repeat offender, drinking and driving everywhere he went. He did get arrested and jailed, but the fact that he had previous offenses and was driving drunk did not have any impact on his case. He will be eligible for parole after five years, after being responsible for two deaths. In this particular circumstance, it isn't so much the sentence, as you will hear throughout this story, but just the fact that drinking and driving on a boat wasn't a criminal offense. Now you've told me that the laws of impairment on a boat are quite different than those in a vehicle, a car, right? Yeah, they. Um, it depends what jurisdiction you're in. And in this case, we were on virtually on the border of the U.S. and Canada. We used the American jurisdiction because there was more of them there. The uh, In Michigan, it, it would be a state law, and the state law is that you can be more drunk driving a boat than you can be driving a car. And the other state law that uh, was of some precedent to me is that if you had several drunk driving charges, you could still drive a boat. Which well, you is... couldn't do that in Canada. Oh, so the law is that if in Canada you had drunk driving charges in a car, you can't drive a boat? Yeah, it, it, for the period of time that your sentence is, particularly if you had two offenses, your sentence would be fairly long. You can't drive any motorized vehicle. Okay, but in the States you can. That's, uh, it's, uh... it's a criminal charge in Canada. It's not criminal in the States. That's mind-boggling to me that this wouldn't have been yeah, something. So one of the things uh, I was able to do is encourage some of the legislators to look at differentiation in the alcohol rate, and they made a change in the law based on this accident. So walk us through that a bit. What did you do to get the law changed? I met with the legislator for the area and explained a few things to him and said how things are working out or not working out. He was going to get convicted anyway, this guy, but I thought it would, you know, I guess each each victim treats their situation differently. Uh, I took the view that I couldn't let a uh, tragedy just pull me in and keep me there. I, I thought that some good should come out of this. Whether I liked it or not, I, I had some skills in consulting and um, I better put them to work and make sure my wife didn't die in vain. How quickly after the accident did you find that you were able to find that strength within you to do these things or come up with that mindset that you weren't going to allow this to bring you down? Pretty quickly. You know, I, didn't, I guess I'm in shock for a bit, but not, not you know, I can motor on. I, I had all of those years of doing consulting and uh, you learn to compartmentalize things and away you go. So you met with the legislator, and he right away thought that that was a good well, idea? Well, he understood the issue, right. and um, he kind of agreed to work on it, and they, they did make the change. There were some other things that I wanted to work on as well, and um, I did some of that, but 
first and the simplest one was this percentage of alcohol. Well, you must have felt good about that, that you were actually able to make a change and that the, that it got passed through the in the American system. Yeah, it, uh, that part of it felt reasonably good, except that it probably wasn't as important as the part I'm working on now. I saw a fair number of things in the American system as I went through this. I started studying their systems and the differences and what victims' rights were or weren't. And I was kind of shocked to find out that victims' rights are like the Wild West. Um, They could be whatever they are, depending what jurisdiction you're in. And I found that Canada, in fact, was way behind most other jurisdictions. And there was just, there's big differences even in between the provinces. So what are some of the differences you're talking about that you find are not, you know, up to par here in Canada or particularly where you are? Um, I'll give you one example. In the case of Ontario and, say, Manitoba, the maximum payment for a victim in Ontario is about $100,000, a victim of crime. And in uh, Manitoba, it's more like $5,000. And in Newfoundland, if it had happened there, well, there wouldn't be any payment. Wow. <laughs> so uh, it it jumps all over the map. And you, there was a good study in uh, of Europe. And Canada's way behind uh, compared to Europe. And I think they're behind compared to the States as well. The States has kind of a different thing where a criminal court tends to order restitution to a victim. And they treat their victims, I would say, better than Canada, if I could say it that way. Do they really? So that's that's very interesting. Now, you were dealing with Detroit when this happened, is that right? Uh, it was St. Clair County, so that's north of Detroit. I just used Detroit as an example so people would understand sort of where this is. Sure. Okay, so St. Clair County is who you were dealing with, and you felt yes. that there they really treated victims differently than you would have been treated uh, here in Canada. They're, they're legislated to treat them differently. They have full-time staff working on it, Uh, under the uh, prosecutor's office. So um, the one thing I found is that the court can and did order uh, restitution for me. Sure, there's issues with insurance and a whole bunch of other things, but the court ordered restitution. You would not likely have seen that in Canada, although we can do it. We don't do it. So now in Canada then, would it be the victim that would have to advocate for themselves to have that happen? They would have to scramble for themselves fairly well. In the States, I got assistance to do it. They gave me assistance in collecting it. Uh, So while the guy was in jail, I actually got a couple checks for a couple hundred bucks. That's amazing. He's now out of jail. I might get some more. Who knows? But it's a criminal restitution, and you can't go bankrupt and get get rid of it. You have to pay it. So what are you doing here? You said you're working on something here. What are you doing here to help with that? I'm working on something that's called sanctioned intervention. Basically, it is a a concept of restorative justice. And there's a, a big difference between what you see in the courts. That... Uh, approach um, generally says who committed a crime and what's going to be done about it and how they could be sentenced. Restorative justice more looks at the victim and says what's been done to the victim, how do we try and set things right and who's responsible for doing that. That's really it's a, it's a completely different 
concept, and yet it's quite a bit older than the court system. The victim can't really do this on their own. I've talked to several people that have kind of tried, and I tried. It doesn't really work on your own. Um, it needs to be facilitated, and the the victim doesn't have to, I, I, I guess the right word is, they don't have to participate fully. They just have to be in agreement with the settlement. And if the victim isn't in agreement with the settlement, then you don't have an intervention. It just goes to court. Oh, so that's good to know. That way, you know, people aren't and, forced to take part in this. If they want their crime to be treated through the court system and for the person just go directly to jail type of thing, that can yeah, still happen. There's some people that want that. Right. And uh, you, can't, you can't tell each victim is different and they have to sort of decide for themselves how they're going to react. But, you know, the, the criminal system creates a victimization industry and everybody that's in the legal system and the victimization industry gets paid and they don't really want restorative justice very badly. Now you said you tried to uh, do it without a facilitator and it didn't work very well. Yeah, I've I've talked to several people that tried. Mm -hmm. What I learned in the process is it's hard to do. And uh, secondly, I learned that it really needs to be done well before a court date. There are some people that view restorative justice as somebody being in jail and serving time for murder and then feeling sorry about it. And they facilitate some meeting with the victim's family and uh, everybody feels better. Well, I just really don't think that that's restorative justice. The facilitator mm-hmm. would spend a little time working with the offender to figure out whether or not that person is likely to change, whether they're remorseful. And I don't think the facilitator would contact a victim until they felt that there was a reasonable hope that something useful could happen here. So that might be it depends. It might be a few days. It might be a few months, depending on what circumstances you're faced with. I might advise the victim, perhaps, that we would be looking at the case. Some of them are just going to get turned down, plain and simply. Some people are just bad. Yes. No, it's true. That's right. And for those people, anyone that would be at risk of reoffending, they're not even, it wouldn't even be an opportunity for them to be part of this program. No, I would say not. And if you can, if you can sort it out so that there's a lot uh, lower risk of reoffending, I mean, the recidivism rate in our justice system is pretty bad. And we want to catch it early. We tend to deal very, very lightly with juveniles in particular, and they just sort of progress to get worse. And if we could stop that progression by early intervention, where intervention is really useful is if it's the family intervening along with the sanction process. Peer pressure from your own family gets you to sort a lot of things out. Agreed. I agree with that very much. I agree with that very much. And if if we can catch stuff early, you know, we make good citizens out of people. But when you make bad citizens, it costs the public money. It costs the family. They come from money and it costs the victims a lot of hurt and pain and, and lots of money. And it just 
it's very hard in our society when we keep throwing people in jail. Word of mouth is such a powerful tool that if you could tell everyone you know about Mourning the Murdered, that would be so helpful to us and we would really appreciate it. You can let them know that we can be found on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and iHeartRadio. So be sure to download each episode and don't forget to like us on Facebook. This will really help us get more exposure. Thanks so much. And don't forget, tell a friend. A huge shout out to my PayPal supporters. With your help, you help us to continue creating this podcast. So Jackson, thank you. Celia, thank you. Mika, thank you. Matthew, thank you. And Mickey, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. I would really like for this podcast to drop weekly so as many loved ones' voices can be heard as possible. Morning the Murdered have both Patreon and PayPal accounts. If you would be able to contribute to help us to keep the show going, we would greatly appreciate it and thank you in advance. You would get a shout-out on a future episode, and we would mail you a thank-you card signed by me. You can find us at Patreon, or for PayPal, send to morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you for your generosity. And now back to the show. Our penal system um, has employees that work on this stuff. And I've met them. Oh. <laughs> I know they're doing terrible. <laughs> right. I mean, they think they're doing pretty good, but I think they had 28 cases across the prairies over the last five years with probably close to 100,000 incarcerations. So that'll give you some <laughs> indication of how futile this is. Yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example. I spoke to some people um, in the Justice Department in Manitoba and restorative justice. And uh, the lady says, oh, we're doing restorative justice. I'm in the working group for that for Canada. Nice that you would say that. But it's not much of a working group when victims aren't included. So I just proved to her that the person who was the victim advocate for Canada didn't even know the working group existed. Oh, my goodness. And especially in restorative justice, that's the whole point of it, right? Is to have the victim involved. Oh, my goodness. So now that's the problem. You've got a a huge learning process to go through. Yeah, we think that for people that have looked at this, we think it would reduce the load on the court system fairly dramatically, and it would deliver a much better outcome. It's post-sentence that they're working on. I want to work on pre-court. So, for example, there are some people now that get diverted from court if it's a minor offense and the police officer suggests that they could go to a diversion from court. And there's a group of people in town that that do some of this. I think it needs to be more widely used. I think it needs to cover more potential crimes. And it's historically, that is how people solve their problems. Right. You sit down and talk about it and sort out who's going to pay for what. And it's 
kind of follows a bit of the civil law that we have, but this is the use of restorative justice in criminal law. Now, would there be any type of crimes that would, in, like for you in your, in the, your uh, explanation of this, that would be exempt from restorative justice? Not really, no. As long as the victim felt comfortable with what was happening, then it yes. could move forward into restorative justice. And because it has to be sanctioned, the victim and the offender are facilitated to some kind of a, a remedy. The remedy recommendation goes to the attorney for the victim and the attorney for the crown and goes before a judge. So the judge gets to look at it and say, does this make sense? The prosecutor gets to look at it and says, does this make sense? So that's the sanctioning process. And during the process, the facilitator goes to a um, an advisory group to say, does this make sense at all? So it gets informal hearing, and then it gets formal hearing afterwards. Right. So that's that's great. So it would have many steps involved so that everyone has an opportunity to make sure, like you're saying, does this make sense? So it's not sort of just one person saying, yes, this is what's going to happen. That's uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's almost what we have happening now because the system is so overloaded and so unwieldy that the prosecutor kind of makes decisions pretty quickly. Yes. And uh, this is a little bit slower in some respects, but it can come out quite a bit faster and it would be a great deal cheaper and more efficient. For example, a, a sanction intervention may include a, a, a prison sentence. I I can't, you know, you'd have to look at each case and say what's mm-hmm. what's logical in this case. But in my case, if you read my victim statement, I said to the judge, you know, you, this, this tragedy has destroyed two families, mm-hmm. and now we're going to destroy a third one. It was a lovely victim statement, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, but, but it didn't have too much uh, impact on the uh, judgment. Well, I, I think it woke the judge up pretty good, but right. I don't think he could do much about it. I think he was very sympathetic to it. There were a number of other things I said in the victim statement. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it was preventable. The tragedy didn't have to happen. There were a number of things they could have done that would would have been better. And uh, just so you see where my humor is, uh, the St. Clair County sent me a bill for littering the river with pieces of my boat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just I'm yes. just shaking my head. I know. I know. Everybody has their own guidelines <laughs> and have to do things their way. Yes. Oh. But it's it's not very uh, it's not very victim oriented some days. No, that's and, right. Uh, you know, you gotta you gotta do the best you can if you're a victim. Yes, it's a problem, but um, your best revenge is to go live your life well. Bob found comfort in trying to find out things about how the court systems work and don't work. He wanted to see how the money was allocated to the justice system was being spent. He wanted to see how justice is being served and followed the process trying to understand it. But most of all, he wanted to understand where the support for the families of victims was and not seeing what things he liked, he chose to make changes. This is what helped him to deal with the grieving process. 
Many people do find support in group counseling, individual counseling, or other ways. And everyone must decide what is right for them as they struggle through the unimaginable fog that surrounds you. But for Bob, being an advocate is what drove him every day. You haven't found comfort in these, you know, support groups that sort of sit and just talk about the emotional... I don't you know. think wallowing in some of those support groups is, is the right thing to do. Right. And I, I'll try and be careful because some people need that. Yes. And it just wasn't for me. Each victim's a little bit different, and some people really need the support of others that have gone through a similar situation. Absolutely. I can't can't say the support groups are useless, but they weren't that useful to me. That's right, exactly. And that's the thing, that everybody has a different way of grieving, a different way of reacting to tragedy, and whatever works for that person. But what is it that worked for you? Well, going back to work on it. Right. That's That was helpful to me. Caused me to concentrate on how can I solve this problem. Everybody's entitled to a little time to sort themselves out. Yes. But you can't carry it forever. You have to live your life. Bob had some interesting thoughts on why sanctioned intervention should take place as quickly as possible after a crime has been committed and before the trial starts. If you're trying to teach a dog something, it ha- if you're trying to change dog's behavior, you have to act immediately when it misbehaves to illustrate that that's not the behavior you want. And it's the same thing in humans. If you leave this for quite a while, the chances of being able to change people's behavior become more and more remote. So you want to act quickly when there's some remorse. you got a fighting chance at that point. You leave it for six months or six years, your chances of changing behavior are just about zero. Yeah, and likely they will have reoffended in that time, well, if oh, it's absolutely. something they're not in jail for. And this whole idea is to, to change people's pattern of behavior so they don't reoffend and they come good for the damage they've done. So if you're in if you're in jail, for example, mm-hmm. and you've been um, you've been convicted. That's post-sentence. In those cases, you might feel remorse after five years and uh, want uh, maybe want to have uh, the victim know you're sorry. Oh, and then have your sentence reduced at that point. Uh, you're not saying. necessarily. Okay. I would rather um, I would rather pitch for a reduced sentence if somebody's learned their lesson prior to sentencing. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. So, okay, so now I'm clear. So, post-sentence, five years in, they might just want to sit and chat with the family and tell them their story. Sorry. Yeah, they might. Right. But it's not necessarily going to affect what what their sentence has been. It it might affect their (laughs) parole somewhat. Biggest clout you've got is when the sentence hangs over their head and hasn't been pronounced yet. Then you've got an incentive for people to change. Absolutely. And that's where I see restorative justice is that, I mean, I I didn't think of one day after the arrest, but whatever short term, week, month, whatever it is that the the people, you know, everyone sits down and talks beforehand. What are you comfortable with? What are, 
you know, prosecution, victim, defense, like you said, judge, whoever's involved in this decision-making process, I don't know. But people sit down before the sentencing and say, how, what will best suit this particular person and then move forward from there? Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I, and I tried to lay it out in, in my document so that people could follow it, so that it kind of made sense as it went along. And it doesn't have to be laborious. Um, and not everybody's going to qualify. If, if people don't want it, well, they don't get it. Yes, that's right. No, it was very clear. Your document was very, very clear. I really liked the way you laid it out. I, it was, I really, really liked reading it. It was very informative and very interesting. And uh, that's why I'm glad we're having this discussion about this, because a lot of listeners won't know what it's about, right? So it's good for them to understand and give them food for thought also for the future. Sure. And I'll, I'll give you one other, for instance. There's a lady by the name of Maureen Vaznicki. She is, uh, her husband was a victim of the Twin Towers mess in New York. She got uh, a bit of a settlement in it from the States, and then Canada tried to tax it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They just didn't recognize her as a victim. Oh, <laughs> my just goodness. just disgusting. If someone has not suffered through a tragedy in their families, the understanding of the financial impact on victims' families is hard to comprehend. The truth is that for the majority of loved ones going back to work soon after is an impossibility. They are unable to function. The emotional and physical stress that is put onto the loved ones is unbearable. And not everyone can direct their sadness and anger into a project. Grieving is unique to each person, and no one grieves the right or wrong way. I, I would tell you that most victims uh, where there's been a murder in the family, uh, and you've broken up the family, you end up selling your house and probably losing your job and a bunch of other things because there's a whole bunch of stuff attached to being a victim. So there are severe consequences for the victim also. And I don't think our system has recognized that very well. The core problem is that the system is not there to look after victims. It's there to pass judgment on offenders. Yes. And victims need the support immediately. Like you're saying, they're they losing do. their homes, they're losing, their families are being broken up. We need to get in there. Well, the government needs to have services in place immediately to support these people, help them through their financial crisis immediately with loss of job, unable to work. People have to remember right. that these victims often are unable to function and unable to work initially. But I, I learned that from a few others that I talked to that were independent people and professional people and they just couldn't look after a client when they're busy trying to look after themselves. That's right. So they need that support right after, you know, they need help so that they don't lose their homes, their families don't fall apart. And unfortunately yeah. in Canada, from what you hear and from what you're saying as well, that it's just not there. So what can you recommend for people to do to to get out, you know, to get the word out? What's the best way for people to get the to get change made? 
Well, I think the one thing that I would like is if you will leave my email address, they could email me and I'll send them information. I've done a few things myself and I can show them how they could duplicate it in their area. So that's great. So you're saying that if they email you, you're going to help them and walk them through the steps to be able to make change in their community. I, I would certainly try. For people that want it, I'm happy to do it. That's fantastic. That's really, really, uh, really nice of you to be there for other people. Bob shared some of his coping strategies he used after his dearly beloved wife was killed. Their 44-year-long marriage and beginning of retirement was ripped out from under them. But Bob has not lost his sense of humor and he put his strengths into use to continue on his journey to enjoy his retirement and live the rest of his life. You had given me a list of, uh, you know, fix your social life and finances and that type of thing. Can you touch real quickly on those uh, on those points and just to give our sure. listeners a last you bit can't, of... You uh, can't, I mean, I, I, you have to fix your social life and you can't sit in a room alone forever. As you probably figured out, I was just retired the uh, I, I decided I needed to get another partner and uh, so I went online and um, started checking out the girls <laughs> <laughs> and as I told you earlier the the neat thing about this is if you're healthy and you got a license uh, and you're male you're the ratio of males to females <laughs> Yes. You're highly valuable. That's <laughs> right. Male. That's right. Many. It's, it's kind of, it, it, you know, it's, it's sort of fun for a little bit, but it's, it's a, in some ways, it's a dirty business. It, uh, uh, people have to lose. Right. You, you can't have them all. No. <laughs> so you had to finally make a choice and pick one yes, there, did you? That's right. Pick one and go with it. Your list set out in front of you, and you made your choice. Well, I'm, I, I'm a consultant. I had uh, I had pictures and readings taped up on the kitchen cabinets, and you know, checking each one to see how I compared them. And you're now happily moved into another relationship, and that's uh, yeah. that's good. I'm I'm happy to hear that. So I have I bought a boat back again. Excellent. And um, going boating. Trying to, trying to enjoy my retirement. Yes. Well, I bought the boat back um, maybe a year and a half after uh, the tragedy. Then I sold it and bought another bigger one. So, and then I bought a trailer so I can be a snowbird in the winter and a fish in the summer. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. And, uh, uh, you know, the last thing you had said to me was make some good come out of this terrible yes. time. And that's a that's a really good piece of advice for well, people. Well, if, if the listeners um, feel uh, moved a little bit with some of the concepts here, get a hold of me and they should help make some good out of it. That would be fantastic. What's your email address? Yeah, you could get me at bobaxford at gmail.com. Excellent. And also for the listeners, I'm going to leave that in the show notes so that you can see it. So you don't have to remember that right now. I really thank you for your insights today, Bob. Thanks for calling. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, 
When someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs>